Hi there, this is Austin Hetzler, the pastor of Christ the Rock Church of Elyria, Ohio. We at Christ the Rock are humbled and grateful to be a part of your sanctification today as you listen to this sermon. But at the same time, we want to encourage you to be a member of a good local church and not to allow online sermons to replace the local church and to benefit from the life of that church and to give your spiritual gifts back to that church. Having said that, our website is www.christrockchurch.com. If you go there, you can find sermons, blogs, and other resources as well as our location and service times. You can also listen to the sermons on Bible Thumping Wingnut, Podbean, iTunes, Google Play Music, iHeartRadio, Spotify, and Stitcher. I, along with the membership of Christ the Rock Church, pray that this sermon will be a blessing to you. Heavenly Father, give us grace as we consider what it means to be made in your image and as we especially seek to cast off everything that contradicts this great truth of our natures. And there is much, Lord, in our day that does contradict this And that is why the pagans are behaving like animals in so many respects, Lord. Give us grace as we seek to rightly divide your word in this matter. We pray for a movement of the Holy Spirit. And we pray these things in your Son's name. Amen. In the previous installment of our series, Considering Paul's Worldview Vis-a-Vis the Mars Hill Discourse, we noted The obvious fact that every consequence has a cause. So nature itself has a cause, obviously. Despite what the ancient Epicureans in our text believed and what present-day secular humanists and evolutionists teach, we acknowledged also that whatever or whomever this cause was, it or they was itself not natural and could not have been because it or they superseded natural processes and thus nature in creation, necessarily meaning that they or it was supernatural. Again, as I said last time, nature can maybe, if we were playing devil's advocate, rearrange the deck chairs, but it certainly could not create the deck or even a single chair on it. And thus Paul says in Acts 17.24 that it was God who made the world and all things in it. Emphasis upon who, because a who or a whom is not a force as the Stoics believed, nor somehow inexplicably eternally existing mass that would be reconstituted as the Epicureans also contended. No, a who or a whom is a person, or in this case, one being, eternally existing as three persons. So it must be admitted then that first, there is a God who is the first cause of all things, and second, that he is other than us in every way, either in kind or degree. Again, this is how he can create us. As I said last time, if there ain't nobody like you who can make you, then there's got to be somebody unlike you who did. But unlike in what ways? Well, many but not all. All in degree, so that it is true that he is holy and he remains so, but not altogether unlike us in kind. And making this discovery would not actually require special revelation, that would be the knowledge that comes from Scripture. This could be deduced by even a reasonably astute mind because, again, creation had to have a creator, and what this creator created is, objectively speaking, far more than functional. It is beautiful, as even the most committed God-hater would have to concede. So even if we allow for a creative force Instead of a personal God, such a force, it could be argued, might make, but it would not make beautiful. Such a force would be impersonal, and impersonal forces would be governed by impersonal objectives, chiefly one would assume utility, practical use. As an example of this, it was utilitarian impulses that created, so to speak, the cubicles that some of you sit in for eight hours a day. If you're in that situation, how beautiful is your cubicle? Not so much. 
How about those of you that are in the medical profession, as I know several of you are or have been? How many of your patients commented on the tremendous aesthetic appeal of the waiting room at your hospital or especially of the examination rooms? As dangerous as a speaker to ask questions, you don't know the answers to for certain, but I would venture a guess that probably none of them have. Now, nobody is struck by the artistry of linoleum and formica and the way that it glows in the overhead lighting there in the hospital because aesthetics played no role whatsoever in the design of most hospitals. These are cold and they are clinical as they exist only in service of meeting the impersonal physical needs of patients. Creation, though, is not this way. Again, obviously. And it's not this way anywhere. Not in any recess. Doesn't matter how high you go. Doesn't matter how deep you go. I watched footage captured this week some time ago by a submarine that was down, they said, I think 38,000 feet. You know what they found there? Colors and variation. Diverse expressions of a divine mind in the form of diverse plants and animals everywhere up until recently, even in places where humans hadn't seen. And this is in keeping with Job 38, 25 through 27, which we looked at last week. God asks Job, who has cleft a conduit for the flood or a way for the thunderbolt to bring rain on a land without people, on a desert without a man in it, to satisfy the waste and desolate land and to make the growth of grass to sprout. We learn there that the beautification of creation by the Lord God and the attendant care of it by him isn't even contingent upon whether or not a human eye sees it. The Lord plants his own gardens everywhere and he makes them beautiful everywhere. In contrast to this, utilitarianism would only beget cold and clinical like that examination room in the hospital or the way that computers create code, it's zeros and ones, and nothing more, but only persons made of more than just biology, paint like whatever or whomever painted the universe and the world and all things in them. And these persons who account for the let us make of Genesis 1 are eternal Father, eternal Son, and eternal Spirit. But as great as the natural world that they have created is, and as undeniably as it testifies to the personalities of its creator, his personalities are actually not best expressed by all the colors in creation, nor by all the diversity which cannot but exist to express beauty as an aim unto itself. No, his personalities are better imaged, in fact, by you and me. And so Paul says in verses 24 through 29, of Acts 17, the God who made the world and all things in it, since he is Lord of heaven and earth, does not dwell in temples made with hands, nor is he served by human hands as though he needed anything, since he himself gives to all people life and breath and all things, and he made from one man every nation of mankind to inhabit all the face of the earth, having determined their appointed times and the boundaries of their habitation, that they would seek God if perhaps they might grope for him and find him, though he is not far from each one of us. For in him we live and move and exist, as even some of your own poets have said, and here it is especially, for we also are his offspring. Being then the offspring of God, we ought not to suppose that the divine nature is like gold or silver or stone, an image formed by the craft and thought of man. Uh, just prior to reading that with all of you, I said that his personalities are better imaged by you and me. I chose imaged. chose that word very deliberately because what Paul is expounding here, especially when he says offspring of God is what theologians call the image of God in man or in Latin you might have heard the imago Dei. And before we get deeply into what the Bible teaches on this, I want to give you three alternate perspectives on the subject. And the first two are those of the Stoics and the Epicureans to whom Paul is speaking. And I give you these because without this you can't fully appreciate the text and what this meant as it was originally delivered to them. The third perspective, though, will come from your society and your culture because without this, we as present-day Americans can't fully appreciate what Paul is teaching. Then from there, the final word will belong to whom it must, which is God. 
per his scriptures. And I meant to get into that this week, but then I discovered what I should have known ahead of time, which is that that is so rich and deep a discussion that it's going to need to wait until next week. And that is all that we will deal with then. But then first to the perspective of the Stoics as it relates to the image of God. Uh, Now to start and to be very clear, Paul is not a Stoic. Stoics are not Christians. Spiritually speaking, the Stoics aren't even a near miss relative to Christianity. They are way off the mark. But on a practical level, and to some extent even on a philosophical one, they are certainly not as far as others away from us, and certainly not as far as the Epicureans are from our worldview. In terms of their soul's distance from God, it is the same for them as the Epicureans, but as a deist in our day is going to align with us on practical and political issues more so than an atheist, so it is with the Stoics and Paul and us. Okay? They are pantheists. They believe in some concept of a deity, much more vaguely than we do, but it is still there. The Epicureans, in contrast to this, are practical atheists. So Paul has here a little bit of common ground that he's able to tug on that thread in verses 27 and 28, that they would seek God if perhaps they might grope for him and find him, though he is not far from each one of us, for in him we live and move and exist, as even some of your own poets have said, for we also are his offspring. He is referring there to the poets who are of the Stoic persuasion. He is responding to their particular perspective, which derives from their founder, who is a man named Zeno from the 3rd and 4th century B.C. The question is, what poet does this refer to specifically? And the answer is, I have no idea, nor does anybody else. Different names have been offered. I'm going to spare you those, though, because these thoughts were expressed by many different figures in Greek history, and it could be any of them. Point, though, is that Paul is building a bridge. But that does not mean that he's compromising anything that he believes okay, or that he's giving ground to them. He's simply acknowledging that there are touch points or corollaries between the Stoics and us, and he is rightly exploiting them. And to show you these common threads as well as our significant differences, one scholar notes, quote, The Stoic system is utter materialism. It adopted corporeal causes only, and it is acquainted with two principles, matter and an activity resident in matter from eternity as power and giving it form. Everything real is body. There are no incorporeal things as our abstractions, space-time, etc. have merely an existence in our thoughts, so all that really exists can be known from our senses. So let me give you a brief synopsis of that. These people are materialists through and through. And for them, their five senses are effectively their sacred text. They are to them what the Bible is to us. They read everything that is in an absolute sense based upon their senses. Obviously, that's going to create a good bit of confusion given the fact that from man to man, person to person, we tend to sense things differently, but that's their perspective. And it is hard to see how Paul builds a bridge from that, but there is more from the same scholar. Matter required for its existence a principle of unity, to give it form and keep it together. And this, the active element, is inconceivable without matter, as a subject in and on which it exists and dwells and in which it works and moves. Thus the positive element is matter, yet conceived without properties. The active one, running through and quickening all, is God in matter. God and matter are identical. In other words, the Stoic doctrine is hylozoic, just meaning everything is alive pantheism, meaning everything is God, okay? And so Paul then says in agreement with them, although paralleling only in that specific point, he is not far from each one of us. But continuing in this same scholar's quote, he says, God is therefore the world soul and the world itself, an organized living being whose complement and life is a single soul or primal fire. God then in his physical aspect is the world fire, physical aspect is key there, or vital heat, all penetrating the one and only cause of all and all motion, and at the same time the necessity that rules the world. 
But on the other side, as the universal cause, he can only be a soul full of intelligence and wisdom. He is the world intelligence, a blessed being and the author of the moral law who is ever occupied with the government of the world, although he is precisely this world itself. And so you can see some connections that we can make as well as some serious distinctions. And on that latter part, it kind of gets exciting, doesn't it? We find a lot of commonality with that. However, before we get too excited, you should realize that the he there, the personal he, is a reference to Zeus. But at least there is space there for something like transcendence. In fact, they do allow for the category of transcendence in truth and wisdom. These things they consider to be eternal. And that concept of an overarching guiding wisdom is the logos for the Greeks. And it was the broad acceptance of this concept conveyed by that term It was the reason that John chose to translate Debar Yahweh, the word of the Lord in Hebrew, into Logos Tautheo, word of the Lord in Greek. That was the only word that made sense. And the concept is totally in consonance also with the beliefs of the Stoics. But still, even though the Stoics had a basis for a more personal, more knowing, perhaps even in some way, feeling deity, it remained that they had no concept of men and women being created in God's image. So this is, for them, still earth-shattering stuff in the way that it is being applied. Their poets recognize something like this, but really not like this in the way that Paul is actually speaking. So that's them. Let's now consider the Epicureans, who are very much different. These also are materialists, as we've acknowledged already in this series through Paul's Areopagatica. However, their brand of materialism is very different from the Stoics. And we've already considered how this relates to their perspective on the natural world, but it also relates to their perspective on men, specifically in every aspect of man, including spiritually. They have a concept uh, of something like a soul, but even this is purely material. Which means, of course, that whatever is conceived of as a soul, commonly and certainly biblically, is totally rejected by the Epicureans. It means that every emotion, every act of distinctly human will and intellect and creativity is just, like everything else, matter in motion. All of these expressions of our humanity are due to biology exclusively. And not to jump ahead to our societal context too much, but this is exactly like the modern-day atheist perspective. Okay? For them, love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control, these are all just chemical reactions manifesting in behavior. Conversely, then, so would be sexual immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmity, strife, Jealousy, outbursts of anger, selfish ambition, dissensions, factions, envying, drunkenness, and carousing. So either positive or negative, really there is nothing moral in terms of human behavior. For the modern secular humanists and ancient Epicureans alike, a car crash and a wedding are basically the same. Matter in motion colliding based upon natural law, which includes physics in the example of the car crash and biological impulses toward procreation in the example of marriage. So, inasmuch as any of the following concepts have any real meaning, none of the following even really exist from the Epicurean perspective. Start with the mind, the notion of the mind. They believe that you have a brain And they would recognize that. But the mind, which is something deeper, which is connected to the human soul, no. Nor heart. Yes, you have an organ that pumps blood, but anything like the center and seat of human will and emotion, as it is conceived of in Christian doctrine, have no room for that either. Certainly then there is no soul, which means absolutely no image of God and no room for it. Uh, Technically, the Epicureans believed in the gods, as in the pantheon of gods. But even these they conceived of as being exclusively material or corporeal and thus biological. So all this means that they certainly don't have any room in their philosophical position for a concept like 
the afterlife. Matter being eternal meant that you had what you had, and you'd been given it by something that preceded you, and when you died, you'd give everything that you had away to that which replaced you, and so you would utterly cease to be. The only sense in which you would go on at all after the point of death would be as the building blocks for another structure. And that is, by the way, what makes sense of Acts 17.32. Now, when they had heard about the resurrection of the dead, some began to sneer, but others said, we shall hear you again concerning this. It would have been the Stoics who said, we shall hear you again concerning this. It would have been the Epicureans who sneered. They were every bit as adversarial to the notion of resurrection as these Sadducees were. They just were for different reasons. Perspective of the Epicureans can pretty much be summed up as, if it is not of nature, it is not. And that definitely includes the idea of being made in the image of a transcendent, eternal God. Now, of course, we must acknowledge that in the example of the Epicureans, we as 21st century Christians gain greater value than Christians did in pretty much any era ever before. And that is because up until very recently in history, very few non-academics actually believed this stuff. And even in academia, this didn't have a ton of purchase. But it sure does now, doesn't it? Here's Charles Hodge commenting on this from more than a century ago. But this is just as true today. I would argue, in fact, much more so. Here he is. Quote, a recent German writer under the head of material asthmus said that notwithstanding the great progress of modern science, the materialists of our day have not advanced a step upon the system of Epicurus. That system, probably owing to the dominant influence of the higher philosophy of Plato and Aristotle, did not exert much influence on the ancient mind and on the process of human thought. It was not until modern times that materialism gained any great power as a philosophical theory. Now, materialism is incredibly regressive. Ironically, though, it could only actually gain traction from modern progressives because primitive pagans, they were evil, very evil in many respects, but they still needed their daily bread, which made them willing to acknowledge that they still needed some kind of God to give it to them. This is why they conceived of a pantheon of gods. Every god gives you something. When Catholics have taken this and applied it to saints, because they are just as pagan, only with a Christian patina. But this is what every idol exists to do, to give you something, to meet some kind of need. But like the ancient Epicureans, modernists are so wealthy that they can't regularly feel enough of their needs so as to force them to acknowledge that they really need anything, and thus need any god. So instead, they just throw religion out entirely and make a god out of nothing. And I am speaking literally. Because who created everything in the Epicurean and the atheistic systems? Nothing did. Surely, whatever creates is God, so for them it is actually nothing. And this conclusion, of course, represents a very special kind of stupid, reserved for a certain kind of moral idiot that even goes beyond that which is represented in Romans chapter 1. Per Romans 1, everybody who denies Yahweh as creator is dumb and is made dumb by their rebellion. They became futile in their thoughts and their foolish heart was dark. Wise, they became fools. But normally that moral and intellectual idiocy results in verse 23 of the same chapter and they exchanged the glory of the incorruptible God for an image in the likeness of corruptible man and of birds and four-footed animals and crawling creatures. But this kind of dumb the kind that says that everything comes from nothing. This only typically comes from rich people who are drunk on delusions of self-reliance that are in fact as fragile as everything else in this world. But drunk as they are, they ignore this fragility and ignore God. Philosophical materialism, which is everywhere around you now in your day, only flourishes alongside commercial materialism, which is also everywhere around you. And prior to modernity, that meant that only a small segment of any society could have justified this intellectually. And I used justified there very loosely. But in modernity, we are wealthy as no people in any period before us. And so raw materialism 
in all its idiotic glory runs riot everywhere. Your neighbor on food stamps can now subscribe to this system because they live in a higher and more vaunted way than kings did in the past. If they could somehow go back in time and tell royalty that they walk to something called a refrigerator and get food and that they go to something called a microwave and they can have hot food whenever they want and they have hot water running from a tap. Truly, we are incredibly wealthy. And as nothing does more to spur religion than desperation, nothing does more to quench it than material excess. Now with this, we have arrived at our third category of consideration, which is the perspective of our society and culture as it relates to what the Bible teaches about the image of God in man. And I have stacked this consideration on top of the Epicureans that preceded it for a reason, and that is because, as I noted, we, we share much the same perspective by and large. We meaning they, okay, the pagans in our day. Although I will say we've taken this perspective to a much more advanced and destructive set of conclusions, and those conclusions, therefore, is what I will focus on. And when we talk about the conclusions that materialists come to, understand that outside of repentance and faith in Jesus or if not at least recanting raw materialism in favor of some generic deism, the best that you can hope for with these people is gross inconsistency. Because when they get consistent with their fundamental presuppositions, things get real, real bad, real, real fast. And the somewhat good news, or at least the not as bad news, is that most unbelievers are grossly inconsistent with their application of secular humanism. And I have, in fact, used this inconsistency between stated worldview and real-life behavior to illustrate the fact of God's image in us many times. I had this um, canned fictional account that I would use when I would interact with people who confess to be atheists, especially men. And they'd say, you know, God, we're all just um, spawned from pond scum, which became protozoa, no morality, nothing like that, just nature, natural consequences, biology. That's what I believe. And I'd go, okay, can I, can I take you through uh, an account here? Just use this as an example to help you illustrate that maybe you're not entirely consistent in the way that you apply your stated worldview. Sure. And if I'm talking to a young man, I'd say, all right, imagine that you have this friend, and maybe you have a friend like this. You love him. You find him to be very, very lovable, but this guy is dumber than a box of rocks. Do you have a friend like that? And beyond this, he really has nothing to offer the world of a positive kind in any sense. Uh, He uh, isn't very smart. Double-digit IQ, probably. Um, And for the purposes of this illustration, forget how you know this, but he has all these negative genetic markers that predispose him towards certain diseases. Okay? And physically speaking, you can pick your excess. Either he's a 90-pound weakling or he's extremely obese. Right? That's his situation. But lightning strikes for your friend. And he ends up with this woman who is a hard 10 I don't know how it happens, but it does happen for some guys, and it happened to this guy, okay? And they get married, but she has not yet conceived of their first child. And you lose touch with your friend. Time goes on about a week or so. And then you hear from a mutual friend, not him, but a third party, that something terrible has happened to him. He's been violently murdered, stabbed to death. And it, it gets even worse than that because the gentleman who did it to him raped his wife. And though she had not conceived from him, she did conceive from the rapist. Now, again, forget how you know this, but you somehow learn that this gentleman who did the raping and who has conceived uh, or who led to the conception of this child, he is everything that your friend was not. He is a card-carrying Mensa member. He is not predisposed toward genetic diseases. He was, physically speaking, a 
paragon. Your worldview is survival of the fittest and the preservation of the genome through people who are more fit, procreating with other people who are also more fit. But tell me how you feel upon hearing that this has happened to your beloved, albeit stupid, friend. Well, I'm incensed. Do you want justice? Sure, I want justice. Okay, now tell me how you ought to feel based upon your worldview. How is him purifying the genome by raping that woman and preventing the procreation of that inferior man a bad thing based upon what you believe? I would use that. Let me give you an example, though, from the current news cycle. I heard this week that Meta is in hot water again because of something that has happened on Instagram, which apparently they knew full well about. There is a group of mothers um, basically pandering to pedophiles through their children. Uh, They put out their very inappropriate pictures, borderline illegal, and then these pedophiles through some subscription service that I don't know anything about because I'm not on any of those, uh, they reach out to them, they engage in this disgusting dialogue, and some of these mothers are even having their children respond to this to encourage it to continue so that they can keep making money off of this. And these children are like six, eight years old. Okay? You tell your neighbor about this who is a secular humanist who has no concept of God and accepts no category as such or being made in the image of God, how do they feel about that? They're disgusted by it. Does their worldview allow for that? No. That child isn't a child. Even that concept of child as we think of it is connected to being made in the image of God. That transaction, as far as they are concerned, shouldn't be anything but a transaction. It is just a higher form of animal. So who cares? They do, because irrespective of what they say, they're still people made in the image of God, but who are living in rebellion against him. So inconsistency with this is bliss. But we are becoming ever more consistent with our rejection of being made in God's image. And most people cannot articulate what is motivating them in this, as well as a man named Yuval Harari. And so I am going to use him to show you what consistency with the idea of accidental humanity looks like. I'm going to do this through a series of quotes from him that we'll respond to from a biblical perspective. Uh, We're going to go through these. We're going to expound upon each because these really do explain the current state of our world, which is based upon how we view ourselves. Uh, This guy is a well-known secular thinker. He's really a, a, a pagan thought leader who's very influential amongst world politicians and policymakers. But the reason I'm using him in this way is because he's not an outlier. He is representative of the worldview that is now animating our civilization. It's just that very often you don't hear it in this kind of an unvarnished way, but you need to. And this will help you make sense of everything that's happening around you. So the first quote is this. There are no gods in the universe, no nations, no money, no human rights, no laws, and no justice outside the common imagination of human beings. Common imagination. Is that an immutable, unchanging standard? No, it's not. It's anything but that. From age to age and society to society, it has changed and in some respects is always in a state of flux. You have that Romans 2, God's law being written on their hearts, but people have transgressed against those things on a societal level many times. They have denied that and uh, killed their consciences to a sufficient extent to do so. But let's acknowledge this for the sake of argument. And for the sake of argument, let us say that Christian values were merely the common imagination of human beings. Okay? If so, what is life like for people who live in societies so constituted? Well, it's pretty good. Because everybody's viewed with equal dignity. Because everybody is believed to have been created in God's image. And even the sins that we did accept end up ultimately getting pushed out as we become more consistent. 
Slavery would be an example of this. It was inconsistent with our worldview, and so eventually we pushed it out. Western civilization accepted slavery like every other civilization did, but we got rid of it faster than any other did, okay? Because we were predicated upon a Judeo-Christian ethic. So the might then is right uh, dictates that ruled everywhere else in history will be replaced with a kind of society that would so to speak, carry Mephibosheth in his infirm state rather than euthanize him because his legs don't work right. But what if the common imagination were Hitlerian? What if we uh, commonly accepted notions of eugenics, superiority of a certain race, race is unbiblical, but for the sake of argument, that some races were higher than other races, What actually happens when no God and therefore no image of God in man equals no basis for human rights or laws or justice? Well, Darwinianism happens, and it happens good and hard, and it looks like dissecting aboriginals because they're not white Europeans, putting them on a table and peeling back their skin to see what's inside because they're just higher forms of ape. Looks like abortion. Looks like Denmark curing Down syndrome, which of course they did by murdering all of the children who had it. And that is very, very dark, isn't it? But Christian, that's only the beginning of the end for that worldview. It is not the absolute end. Survival of the fittest is cruel as a guiding ethos for humanity, but it is still ordered. An order very often at least offers some kind of protection But if chaos is where you began, chaos being cosmic flatulence created everything for no reason, then ultimately chaos is where you are going to end up, which is to say that all the chaos that you now see around you all the time is actually the logical conclusion of an utterly illogical foundational premise. Therefore, all of the following are consistent with secular humanism. People mating with objects. Why not? If there is no governing order set by an immutable standard through a transcendent lawgiver, why not? How about polyamory? Why not? No, it isn't the basis for any kind of a successful family and it can't raise children successfully, but who cares? If chaos is our father, then why shouldn't we? Sodomy, no, that doesn't go there, and it certainly doesn't produce children, and it can't sustain life. In fact, it takes life. That's why sodomites die so much sooner on average, because they are a vector for disease. It is contrary to nature. But why not? It's just the right kind of chaos for us. Trans everything, that's really the right kind of chaos. Men can be women, women can be men. That's not ultimately transgenderism, it's transhumanism. They are trying to rise above the image in which they were actually made. Or men lactating, as I think I raised last week in the Q&A. Men can now lactate better than women. I know, because I heard it on the news. That's chaos, chaos, chaos. Now, the development of the West post-Darwin has been a little like the common practice of sons becoming like their fathers. Sons, typically, at least when you're a teenager, this was this way for me. I didn't want to hear that I was just like my dad. And so I would say, no, no, I'm not. And then I would set out to prove that it wasn't so. Well, the father of evolution is chaos. But Western civilization has continued to build ordered societies for a long time after adopting it as if to prove that they were not just like dad. But now we are more than a century later and the West has dad's same receding hairline and beer belly and penchant toward absolute incoherency, which was always where this was going to end. Because that is where it began. And people are asking what happened to our society over the course of the last decade. You know what happened? We caught up. That's it. Our behavior caught up to our worldview. And now they are much more in line with each other. And so, next quote, human rights, 
just like God in heaven, are a story that we've invented, like John Lennon said. They are not an objective reality. They are not some biological effect about homo sapiens. Take a human being, cut him open, look inside. You'll find a heart, the kidneys, neurons, hormones, DNA, but you won't find any rights. The only place you find rights are in the stories that we've invented and spread over the last few centuries. They may be very positive stories, very good stories, but they're just fictional stories that we've invented. That would be Christianity, is what he's referring to there. And they may be very positive stories, would also allow for them not being very positive stories, wouldn't it? But only the tangible is real. There is no higher meaning. Take a frog, cut him open. Take a human, cut him open. Because next, quote, Homo sapiens have no natural rights, just as spiders, hyenas, and chimpanzees have no natural rights. So human rights, which in the Judeo-Christian system are derived from being made in the image of God, for him are just a story about some animals, us, made up by some animals, us again. And obviously the implications of that last quote is that you are no different than the chicken or the cow or the pig that will soon be on your dinner plate, which inevitably leads to, next quote, we just don't need the vast majority of the population, meaning the human population. Well, of course we don't. Because when the mouths that you're feeding no longer have souls, what's the point of having so many? The virtue of procreation is bound to God's image bearers, bearing that image in as much of creation as possible because God's glory is the point and therefore his image being manifest in all corners of the world through us is humanity's highest purpose, biologically but especially spiritually, through the spread of the gospel. But without this, Scrooge's decreasing the surplus population is virtuous because us having more food might mean less food for all the other animals and it definitely means less of them because we're going to kill some of them to eat. And what gives us the right to do this considering we are just a higher form of animal ourselves? And being that we are just animals too, we should probably be corralled, right? Because you don't just let your cows run around and this leads us to the next quote, Humans are now hackable animals. The whole idea that humans have this soul or spirit and nobody knows what's happening inside them and they have free will, that's over. And when I read that quote, I chuckled a bit because I'm a Calvinist and my views on free will are objectionable to many. But if you think mine are objectionable, you ought to consider what the people who have this worldview want to bring upon you. Because at least Calvinists differentiate between categories of will, libertarian and creaturely, and we leave the latter one intact and recognize that it is real and real in relation to God's sovereignty in ways that we do not understand. But these people, they are going to take all of your agency in every category because you are no more than an animal to them. Now, I may have stressed you out, but... The gentleman that I'm quoting from has a solution for that too, and it is drugs. Next quote, money, social status, plastic surgery, beautiful houses, powerful positions, none of these will bring you happiness. Lasting happiness only comes from serotonin, dopamine, and oxytocin. Do you remember this quote from that scholar concerning the Stoics that I read to you earlier? Stoic system is utter materialism. It adopted corporeal causes only and is acquainted with two principles, matter and an activity resident in matter from eternity as power and giving it form. Everything real is body and there are no incorporeal things as our abstractions, space, time, etc. have merely an existence in our thoughts. So all that really exists can be known from our senses. This is the same thing. Only the difference is that the modern materialist is not a pantheist. Again, they have no concept for anything like transcendence. They are atheists. So logic and beauty aren't even transcendent. They are transient. So nothing lasts, so everybody just get high. And they are. And on your own time, you can look up the stats on the rise of antidepressants in this country. They are horrifying. This is happening because pretending away your soul does not mean that you don't actually have one. All that does is cut you off from all the things that could actually heal your hurting soul and just leaves you stoned. 
which is exactly how your new gods want you because there's always going to be a god and gods always seek sovereign rule and that requires subjects and that requires subjugation. And pharmaceuticals are great for that. But those are for the ones that they want to control. It doesn't account for the ones that they cannot control. That would be the Jesus is Lord crowd. And when they talk about we need to cull the human herd, it'll be people like us who'll be first in line, as it has always been under every tyrannical regime that seeks to set up a false god. But if you would like to prevent this from happening, you must, going back to last week, fight for God as creator. And you can add to that, per this week's discussion, that he created us in his image. Otherwise, there is no escaping that. To give you one last quote here, here are what the enemies of God are doing and our enemies. He says, finally, God is dead. It's just taking a a while to get rid of the body. There, I'm sure, quoting Nietzsche in the first part of that and putting his own flair on the end. You and I, when we observe creation as Christians... It elevates our souls. It leads us to worship. You go out, a matter of fact, I was just noting on the way here with my son, there was this rolling wall of clouds coming towards it. It was beautiful. And we passed under it. It was dark. I noticed all of that. And all of that points me towards the God who made it. Every time I look out, it causes me to look up. I see the divine mind everywhere. And I hope that you do too. I know that you do if you're a Christian. But when they see creation, they don't see it in those terms. They see it as a crime scene. And what is the crime? Well, the crime is murder. And who did the murdering? Well, they did. And who is the murder victim? Well, in their hearts and minds, the murder victim is God himself. And so what do you do with a crime scene when you're the one who committed the crime? You scrub it. So you get rid of all the fingerprints that you can, all the forensic evidence, but if you have the opportunity, the best way to cover the crime of murder is to get rid of the victim himself. That is why they cannot allow God or any concept of God, not in creation, not in man imaged through him. They have murdered him and they cannot let him come back up as inconsistent and as absurd as it makes their conclusions, they will still hold to them for this reason. So that was a lot of satanic chaff. And I'm going to ask you to let pretty much all of it blow away, with exception to retaining enough of what we have talked about to be able to better refute these things, to understand where these people are coming from, and to be able to respond with the gospel to it. As I said, next week we're going to thoroughly expound the image of God from Scripture, but to start to direct your minds in the right way now, because I don't really want to leave you where you are at present. Back at the beginning of this sermon, I said, uh, quoting myself here, as great as the natural world that they have created is, and as undeniably as it testifies to personhood, the personhood of its creator, his personality is not best expressed by all the colors in creation nor all of the diversity which cannot exist but to express beauty as an aim unto itself. No, his personalities are better imaged by you and me. That, though, was the final draft. It was not the first draft. First draft was wrong, which is why you go through a process of editing as a preacher. The first draft, I didn't have the word better there in terms of better imaged by you and me, I had the word best. And that is not true, is it? Who is the best image of God? Christ. Colossians 1.15, Jesus is the image of the invisible God. Romans 8.29-30, through 30, those whom he, the Father, foreknew, he also predestined to become conformed to the image of his Son, so that we would be so that he would be the firstborn among many brothers. 
And those whom he predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. It is self-evident that though we image God, that image is marred. As you see the person of Christ, you see what that image is supposed to be. And he is the only example of it. He is the redemption of that, which is another reason why you cannot let this teaching go. If you let the image of God go, then what is it that Christ came to do? What is it that Christ came to redeem? To redeem a higher form of animal? No, to redeem those that are created in the image of God. Thus he became one of us, bearing that same image, but bearing it perfectly, and thus able to create in us a perfect image as well. To restore what Adam took from us. The second Adam, who bears the image of God, maintained that image surrendering it in no way to sin. And by faith and repentance in him, he will restore yours. And if you do not know the Lord Jesus, come to him so that he can give you back that which you have lost, uh, which you've never known, uh, which your race set aside in Eden through our federal head. And I pray that you will. Heavenly Father, We praise you and we thank you for all that your word teaches on this subject, Lord. And I pray that your people would be encouraged by these things. What a thing it is to believe that you came from nothing. And that you're just protoplasm. Bumping into other sacks of protoplasm. How irrational. Lord, protect us not only from this, but from all that comes from this. All the implications of it. And give me grace as I expound upon that next week. And I praise you and I thank you for these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Hi there, this is Austin Hetzler, the pastor of Christ the Rock Church of Elyria, Ohio. We at Christ the Rock are humbled and grateful to be a part of your sanctification today as you listen to this sermon. But at the same time, we want to encourage you to be a member of a good local church and not to allow online sermons to replace the local church and to benefit from the life of that church and to give your spiritual gifts back to that church. Having said that, our website is www.christrockchurch.com. If you go there, you can find sermons, blogs, and other resources as well as our location and service times. You can also listen to the sermons on Bible Thumping Wingnut, Podbean, iTunes, Google Play Music, iHeartRadio, Spotify, and Stitcher. I, along with the membership of Christ the Rock Church, pray that this sermon will be a blessing to you.